Now thorns and towers. This is where we switch to chapter 8. Then the Ephraimites said to Gideon, What have you done to us? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight against the Midianites? They're mad because they weren't part of the group. Well, he did call them. They did come. And then God said, If you're scared, go home. Well, okay. Um, And they criticized him sharply. Now, sometimes a man takes criticism and he will smooth things over. And sometimes a man will lose his temper, right? But Gideon here has, a, I'll call it a Matt Dillon moment, and he smooths things over instead. And uh, he answered them, what have I done in comparison with you? Isn't the gleaning of Ephraim's grapes better than the whole vintage of Abiezer? So Ephraim's grapes is, I believe, a, a play on the fact that they killed General Zeb at this wine press. But the vintage of Abiezer, people knew that Gideon had been called at this wine press. So your wine press is better than mine. You know, what did I do in this battle? I just broke some jars and scared people. You're the ones who did the killing. So you guys take credit that's where credit is due. I think that that's how we can apply this um, here and the way that, that Gideon handles this with these guys. God has given the Midianite generals Oreb and Zeb into your hands. What have I been able to do compared to you? And when he said this, their anger against him subsided. Then Gideon and the 300 men with him kept up the pursuit. Even though they were exhausted, they came to the Jordan and crossed over. So he keeps his his half brigade and they keep running because they're not just after the generals. They're after the Midianite king. So he keeps going. They cross the Jordan. And now they're in Israelite territory, however. Remember half-tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and uh, Gad are over here on the what I'll call the Transjordan. He's in Israel. They're going to run into Israelites on the way. Um, and he does. He said to the people of Sukkoth, which means... Uh, uh, shelters. It's, it's a town name over across the Jordan. Please give some loaves of bread to my followers for they're exhausted. I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. I'm going to talk about those names in a second. But the officials of Sukkoth said, and these are Israelites, do you already have Zeba and Zalmunna in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Well, been fighting all night, man. I just I'm asking you for breakfast here. And, and but no, they don't give him breakfast. So Gideon replied, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will tear open your flesh with the thorns and briars of the desert. So you're gonna get it. Wait till your father comes home or whatever. Uh, my mother said that, never said that. My mother could spank me through a screen door. She did not wait till your father comes home with us. She handled us. But from there he went up to Peniel, or Penuel. It's it, it spelled two different ways. And made the same request of them. Peniel is famous for a tower that they had. But the people of Peniel answered him, just as the people of Sukkoth had answered. And when he said to the people of Peniel, when I come back in triumph, I will tear down this tower. So I'm going to punish this group and I'm going to rip your tower down to this other group here. And now his victory. By the way, um, 
Ziba and Zalmunna. So these two kings, Ziba and Zalmunna are basically Hebrew words. And I'm sure that these, uh, uh, what are they, uh, Midianite kings, didn't have those actual names. But they sounded like something. Ziba, whatever his name was, you know, Tziva or some, or, or who knows, um, or Sivan or Steve, I don't know, what. It, anyway, whatever it was. Um, they called him Ziba um, because it was a word in Hebrew. It was the word for the oldest of the sacrifices, the kind when you'd offer an animal and then you'd, and everybody would sit down and eat the rest. That's a Ziba uh, a sacrifice. And Zalmunna sounds a little bit like uh, a word that occurs in the Psalms when you hear about something that's shadowy. So, the shadow knows. You're all too young to remember the radio shows. But anyway, that was the, uh, uh, they called him Mr. Shadow or whatever. Um, it reminds me of when the, Isra- uh, when the British soldiers gave a nickname to their opponent. So his name is Bonaparte, but the British just called him Boney. You know, as a joke. Because it sounds kind of dumb and so forth, so maybe maybe something like that. Uh, I don't know. It's a different reason why the British in World War II called Hitler um, Schicklgruber. Ask me about that another time. Okay, All right. it's not very nice. All right. Now Ziba and Zelmuna were in Karkor with their army. About 15,000 men. All that was left of the armies of the people of the east, 120,000 armed men had fallen. It's a huge army that had basically killed itself, right? They had wiped each other out. So Gideon went up by the caravan route east of Noba and and, uh, uh, Jogbeha, and he attacked the army, catching them off guard. I have reason to believe that he went up a particular mountain pass where it was a narrow gorge, and got them there. Um, have you ever seen the old westerns? Uh, the, the big battle right before the last battle in every western ever made is always in a mountain gorge. You know, they, they catch a couple of the guys in the, in the mountain pass, and then, uh, then John Wayne is up on a, on a rock and he shoots all the bad guys himself, you know, and, and uh, spins his rifle and stuff like that. And, then the big battle happens at the end, but um, but it was one of these mountain passes because the thing about a mountain pass with these kind of in this kind of a war is that if you trap if you bottle the guys in, the whole army that's trapped cannot fight all at once, and a small group can defeat a larger group, um, and and uh, and so you can use that to your advantage. Also, Gideon's going to use it to his advantage to escape by hiding his numbers, by using the same mountain pass, they can't see how many guy, how few guys he has. Um, after he, um, I'm, I'm spoiling it, but he cat, captures the kings. So this is what happens here. So Ziba, I, I, uh, the pass of Cheres is the thing I've been talking about, the pass of the nomads. Um, Ziba and Zelmuna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them. He routed the whole army. When Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the pass of Harris, which is what I think he used, he caught it for the beginning as well as the end here. He caught a young man from Sukkoth and questioned him. 
And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials and elders of Sukkoth. That is a spectacular stroke of good fortune. First of all, young man can mean anything from a toddler who's no longer nursing to a 20-something who's not married yet. So that's, that's the young... So what... Uh, do we have here a schoolboy who could read and write and could write down the... And, but what schoolboy in... What, what adult in New Ulm, if you grab him by the arm down on Main Street, could even name the mayor? Let alone the 77 most important officials. Mark, are you going to brag that you know the mayor's name? <laughs> so do I, but go ahead. <laughs> sure. Further than I can. Yeah. <clears throat> this, this passage is used as a reference point to that. That it's possible that the educational level was just out of this world for young men. But it's also possible because, oh, okay, any, maybe any kid they grabbed could have done reading and writing here. But to know the names of all 77 officials makes me wonder, just wonder, if maybe he was, I'll say, a junior clerk in the city gate and he worked with these guys and, and he, maybe he was the kid who had to make the copy with the stylus and the clay and spell out their names, you know, or that kind of a thing. It could be that because that, uh, uh, the thing about copies in those days was you had to do it all by hand and if you had to make a couple of copies and you had more than one clerk, you know, who had to do this and... So he could have been one of these, but who knows? Uh, well, the Lord knows, and we'll find out in heaven. But, um, but it is the, the, the fact is that God is with Gideon at every turn, just as he promised. So he told him, I am with you. you know, my, the, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's in chapter 6. And he shows that he was with this, with, uh, with, with, with this judge that he had called to, to, to judge Israel. Um, okay. Then, did I finish what I was going to say there? Yeah. Then Gideon came to the people of Sukkoth and said, here are Ziba and Zalmunna. You taunted me by saying, do you already have in your possession the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna? I think that should be heads. Do I have a misprint there? Da, 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 da. No, do you already have Ziba and Zalmunna in your hands? That's, that's the end of verse 6 there. So I'll go back up to our verse here. So uh, I, I, think, I think that my translation is poor. Do you already have in your hands or in possession? I think I just did a poor job with my translation. Forgive me, that we are reading me here after all and not like the NIV or something. So I probably just have a poor translation. 
Um, I'll, 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 I'll admit that. So That we should give bread to your exhausted warriors. Then he took the elders of the city and he took briars and thorns of the desert and with them he tore the flesh of the people of Sukkot. So he made for himself nasty sticks. And can you imagine being whipped with a thorn bush or something like that? Yikes. Um, we have time for a story? When I was a boy, my friends and I played army a lot. Usually using like turned around baseball bats as guns and just, you know, or sticks or whatever. And uh, as we got older, when we were, you know, seven, eight, nine, that was okay. But if we got to 11, you know, we started doing some pretty wild things, you know, uh, laying ambushes in trees and things like that. There's only four of us, two against two. But, um, and, but my friend Pete and I always lost. And Pete and I got sick of losing because I think Scott and Pat cheated. But anyway, I don't know. But anyway... They were athletically better than us, but, they, but we played together. And anyway, we were near Rowan Creek. And above the creek at one point was a barbed wire fence. And uh, Pete and I knew that the middle two strands were broken. And we bent them back so that you could, you could run right through it. But the bottom strand that was in the grass was still intact. Um, and we assumed that Scott and Pat knew that too because we played there all the time. So you had to dart through. You had to duck under the top strand of, bar of barbed wire, but you had to jump over the bottom strand at the same time. And so we kind of set this little ambush, this little trap for them. So we made it obvious where we were. I think Pete even like kicked a rock or a can or something so they would find us. Then they came running down the path by the creek. It was all very exciting. And uh, did we even supply our own music? I forget. Anyway, and, uh, you know, singing a song or whatever, and, or da-da-da-da, you know. And, and, um, uh, and Pete and I ran up the hill and jumped through the barbed wire fence. And Scott and Pat evidently both forgot or didn't know, and they both cut up their legs terribly on this barbed wire. Um, and... Uh, and everything that they had done to us for the last five years fell away, and we became the bad guys instantly. Um, their parents called our parents and all this and, and so forth. And, and uh, yeah, I remember that. But, but, uh, but it, uh, you know, anything that's like barbed or, you know, can really hurt. I have a scar permanently on my right hand because of just a, uh, an outcropping of metal an imperfection in a safe at the McDonald's I worked at for years. I put my hand in to grab a roll of quarters and, and because the quarters were stacked so high, I, my hand had to drag out and I tore open my hand, got blood everywhere um, because of that burr on that, that our, our boss had known about. Didn't think it would be a big deal, but, you know, um, uh, any, I had to have stitches even because it was that deep, and it, but the, the scar is here. Um, and, uh, but I can't imagine what they went through. And, well, what did our Lord go through on the rostrum at the beginning of John 19? You know, he was scourged and, and whipped. And um, so uh, they do this to the people of Sukkoth. 
And then he also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Um, I actually found a stained glass window. It's not colored stained glass. It's just etched uh, stained glass. I'll take away some of the black so you can see it better. Um, so there is, uh, you see the guys at the bottom are holding long poles or something. And this is clearly from the time when this window was made and not a representation of what had happened so long ago. Because it's all they had to do was get under this sort of cupola or tower on a little city in Italy or someplace, and they knew that if you got a stick under it, you could just push it off. You know, that's, that's, that's their idea of... Because in ancient times, when you see, especially in the Renaissance, whenever there's art, artwork about the Bible, it's always in the present clothing. Whatever the artist had in front of him is what he painted. Um, uh, it wasn't really until modern times that people tried to imagine what did they wear. And we still get it wrong. Because uh, uh, the, the, the worst culprit is probably Hollywood. You know, that, that, that never gets costumes right from ancient times. They've always mixed things to make it seem better when it's not, you know, and so forth. I mean, when were the, when were the first, uh, when was the first clothing sewn together and actually made? by God in the Garden of Eden. Gave Adam and Eve clothing that he made from animal skins. Um, and uh, so you don't have to go wondering who invented the first, you know, backstitch or whatever. Um, but so, this little representation. Let's get to kings, camels, and crescent moons. Let me ask the class, what's your uh, ballpark date for the beginning of Islam? Century is good enough. Five, six hundred A.D., right? Relatively not long ago. But we have crescent moons in the text long before Islam. But when you're talking about Arabs in the desert, they have nothing except the moon and the stars, you know, for artwork. So crescents go back far beyond far before, um, you know, Islam. So he asked Ziba and Zalmunna, the men you killed at Tabor, what sort of men were they? They answered, as you are, so they were. Each one of them resembled the son of a king. Gideon replied, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. They killed his brothers. So Gideon's blood gets up and Gideon says to Jether, his firstborn son, let me stop there. Who else was named Jether in the Bible? Jethro. Moses' father-in-law, who, by the way, was a Midianite. Interesting uh, connection. Laura, no class next week. So, all right. So, uh, uh, he tells his firstborn son, kill them. But the boy did not draw his sword because he was afraid. He was still only a boy. Um, a lot of boys, you know, balk at the first idea of, of killing, whether it's because they have a deer in their sights or a pheasant, you know, or a pigeon or whatever it is. Um, they don't necessarily want to kill. That's something that... If a father wants to teach his son to kill an animal, it can be a difficult thing. 
Um, and this boy panics. He doesn't want to kill this guy. Um, you understand that. But then Ziba and Zalmunna said, come and kill us yourself, as is the man, so is his strength. I can't get over how brave a thing this was of these two kings to say. They, it reminds me of accounts I've read where somebody is in front of the firing squad or at the scaffold and the people there are too scared to give the order and so the condemned man gives the order himself. There are accounts of that happening in history um, and that's what happens. They basically give the orders themselves to, to Gideon, you kill us. Um, also, from their perspective, if they're worried about their reputation, would I want it to be said that I was killed by a boy? Or that Gideon himself killed me. That might have been part of what they were doing here, but it was a brave thing. So Gideon killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So, no time for trivia, let's move on. Sins against the first commandment. This is where our hero now begins to trip up. So the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson too, for you have delivered us out of the hands of Midian. What was Israel asking Gideon to become? King. And notice they asked that his son, whoever it was, become king as well. We should remember that because it's about to happen, but not in the way that anybody thought. Gideon answered them, I will not rule over you. Nowhere will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon has the right idea. But why does he do this? Then he said to them, let me make a request of you. Each of you give me an earring. He's taken his plunder. For the enemy had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they have all this jewelry. He spreads out a garment. We'll be glad to give them the answer. They spread out a garment. Each man threw an earring into it that he had taken his booty. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Do you think that a shekel is worth, or um, uh, maybe about the same weight as, should I just say a quarter? Is that good enough? 1,700 shekels? Don't put that in your kitchen cupboards. It'll break the board, right? You know, think about that, the weight um, there. Um, uh, uh, apart from the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and the chains that were on the necks of their camels. So they had gotten all this plunder and just the, just the earrings, half of the earrings, just one, uh, was 1,700 shekels. It's a huge amount. Gideon made the gold into an ephod. And as you see, an ephod was uh, a kind of a apron worn over the shirt or a vest uh, this one has the whole thing as like a giant golden vest I can't imagine how heavy this would have been for one thing that thing there if that's solid gold my head wouldn't have fit through that you know I don't know if that's solid gold or not but whatever it was maybe it was just gold what's that called lame when there's fabric that's gold or whatever but uh, yeah um, anyway, he, he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Uh, so uh, the ephod of the high priest of Israel had this 
breastplate with the 12 uh, stones for the 12 tribes and Gideon evidently makes something very similar to it. But all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Shouldn't have been done. Um, Only the high priest of Israel should have had an ephod to wear. And the high priest's ephod, he only wore on special occasions. Um, In fact, on the most special occasion of all, the great day of atonement, he didn't wear it. That day, he showed up with nothing but a regular linen robe. But other, other times, he had this ephod on, and behind it would be two pockets where he kept the yes, no rocks, the Urim and the Thummim that he had. Uh, however, those were used. I don't understand it myself, but they were used in some way of telling you know yes or no answers. Um, but this thing became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now his last days. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they were no longer a threat. Then the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, during his lifetime. So if this victory happened when he was, what do we want to say, 30? 40 more years and he'd be still a reasonably young man of 70. Can I say that? The older I get, the more I think that 70 is still a reasonably young man. Um, just 11 years away. And uh, um, the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now this reference, Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back to live in his own house. A reference to the very beginning of his days. What had he done when God called him? He had wrecked his father's altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. And he got this nickname, Jerubbaal, the Lord or Baal will contend. And now he's gone and made a piece of false worship himself. He trips up on that old, old sin of his dad. Now Gideon had 70 sons. Wow. He was a, when we first met him, he was a poor man, barely you know, threshing a tiny amount of wheat. And now he's got uh, 70 sons because he had many wives. Um, those are the wives and the sons in my smallest uh, uh, collection. Um, go ahead, Mark. Those were his brothers, not his sons. You're getting ahead of us. His sons will be murdered by someone else. Sorry. Uh, so, but I, I do want to say that having a large harem was the custom of all of Israel's neighbors, but it's not God's will. Um, it's whenever God's leaders or kings introduce a second or many wives into their lives, things do not go well. Uh, it just begins to go downhill. Did Jacob need to have four wives? No. In fact, if Jacob had been content with Leah, the first one, the one he was duped into marrying, the Levites, and Judah. So the Savior's line all come from Leah. I, they didn't necessarily need the other wives. You know, it could have been handled very differently. Isaac and Rebekah are happy. Isaac never had a different wife besides Rebekah. Um, but uh, Abraham had trouble when 
he and Sarah decided to introduce uh, Hagar into the, into the marriage. Solomon went crazy wild with, with idolatry. David had trouble with his extra wives and so forth. Um, downstairs. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son. Besides these wives, he had at least one concubine. Bore him a son and he named him Abimelech. Shall I teach you just a little bit of Hebrew? So Abba means what? Father. Abi means my father. Melech is king. So he names this son, my father is king. Gideon's making mistakes here in his old age um, after the victory. Then Gideon, son of Joash, notice, by the way, what color is that son? He's red. The next chapter is about him. He's not a good guy. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites turned again and prostituted themselves to the Baals, making Baal Bereath their god. So instantly they turn away. This is Baal Bereath in modern times. Um, it's ruins and so forth. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, Gideon's family does not do well after this. There's a kind of a what have you done for us lately attitude among the people with Gideon's family. You know, you were nothing once and you're nothing now. Now that Gideon's dead. But the Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies all around them. And they did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal that is Gideon for all the good that he had done for Israel. How many of God's leaders go their whole lives without making any mistakes? <laughs> yeah, uh, and, uh, but praise God for working through us um, and despite us. Um, and Paul said in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, so there is, there is hope not only for us, but for our sometimes meager actions, our best intentions that sometimes just go wrong. Next time we'll visit Gideon's wicked son. God bless you all. Thanks for letting me do this. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.